So things are not what they appear to be. Did you know that? Have you ever purchased a car, say a used car, looked really good, it was shined up and clean and stuff like that, but it turned out quickly not to be as reliable as you thought it was based on appearance? Have you ever trusted someone who ended up not being who he or she appeared? Have you ever voted for someone who, never mind, Now we're in trouble because we make decisions all the time on the basis of appearances. And uh, things and people often are not what they appear to be. Did you know the Lord Jesus is not at all who he appeared to be? He ended up being much more than that. And that's the whole subject matter of the text before us tonight, as you will see. It's in John chapter Seven, and we'll begin in verse 14. John chapter 7, verse 14. I hope you find this to be helpful. I did in personal study, and I hope you do tonight. Look what it says. But when it was now the midst of the feast. Last week we mentioned that the feast is the feast of tabernacles or booths. In Hebrew it's called Sukkot. It was a commemorative time. Israel remembered their 40 years of wilderness wandering during which time they were sustained in temporary dwellings or booths. And so this was kind of like a Thanksgiving feast. Also agricultural celebration, thanking God for his sustenance and for the harvest. So that's the feast. During the Feast of Tabernacles, Uh, According to Leviticus 23, there are about eight feasts of Israel. Three of them are mandatory pilgrim feasts. So Jewish males over the age of 20 had to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem during these three feasts, this being one, Feast of Tabernacles. So it would be really, really crowded in Jerusalem. Every observant and obedient Jew would make his or her way up to this particular city on this occasion. So the text says it's now in the midst of the feast. And uh, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. He went to Jerusalem because he fulfilled the law. And he was observant and obedient. And so he too, as did all the Jewish males, made his way to Jerusalem. At the time, he was in Galilee, So though he traveled south from Galilee to Judea, where Jerusalem was located, still we refer to his journey and everyone else's as a journey in which you go up to Jerusalem. It's not just elevation. It's sort of spiritual. It's the holy city. So from whatever direction you're traveling in, you're always going up spiritually to Jerusalem. The text said he went into the temple, and it was the midst of the week. So uh, Sukkot, or tabernacles, is about eight days long. So if this is in the midst of the feast, we could surmise that the Lord went there around the fourth or fifth day during the week of tabernacles. And uh, we're told he went up into the temple. It would be a misperception to think this means he went into the building called the temple. He went into the precincts of the temple. 
there was a physical structure, this magnificent marble temple, and it had rooms in it with very limited access. But everyone could go into one or more of the courtyards surrounding the temple. That's what he did. In fact, he was teaching probably in a place called the portico or porches of Solomon. Not sure where it got its name, but this would be a, a covered area on the perimeter of the temple courtyard, covered and with colonnades, columns, and open on one side. And all visiting rabbis would come to the portico of Solomon to teach there. So it's highly likely that this somewhat radical rabbi Jesus chose that place, as did the other rabbis, uh, from which he did his teaching. He began to teach. Wouldn't you have given almost anything to be there when he, when he taught? And you wonder, what was he saying, and how did he say it, and what would it have been like? Well, we're not able to, but if you're a believer, you'll be able to get in on his firsthand uh, direct teaching throughout eternity when we see him face to face. Anyway, there he was. He began to, to teach. And verse 15, the Jews, remember I mentioned last week, be careful about coming to fast conclusions when you see that term because the term the Jews is used in different ways according to the context. In this context, a better translation is the Judeans specifically the Judean religious leadership. Oh, they were Jewish for sure, but we're speaking here of the more limited group of Judean religious leaders, not the Jews as a people group. So these Jewish religious leaders were marveling, saying, how has this man, this Jesus, become learned, having never been educated? Could I tell you something? I'm guessing here a little bit. But, uh, I'm not sure they recognize this man to be Jesus yet. And you might say, what are you talking about? These Judean Jewish religious leaders are waiting for him to show up during the Feast of Tabernacles so that they could probably imprison him or something. How could it be they didn't recognize him? Uh, folks, he was rather ordinary looking. We're going to develop this in a second. Once again, don't judge a book by its cover, but if you were to judge this Yeshua, Jesus, by appearances, he would look like pretty much every other Jewish man. He'd probably be not very tall. He'd probably have dark hair, curly. He probably would be dark-skinned. I mean... He'd look like every other Jewish man. So I, I think the Jewish religious leaders didn't quite recognize him at this point. What they did recognize is that he was uh, uh, teaching with a measure of authority, and they marveled over it because they said, where did he get his credentials from? Where did he get educated? I mean, he didn't get his degree from any of our schools, that's what it's, how did he become so learned, having never been educated? Now, they were not marveling, frankly, at the quality of his teaching. They were marveling at the audacity of it. Who does this unofficial, non-credentialed rabbi think he is? 
standing up and speaking with authority. We didn't put our stamp of approval on him. He didn't study in any of our schools, and therefore, how dare he think he has authority to speak and to teach? That's what's kind of going on. So uh, I'll tell you something about rabbinical teaching, how rabbis teach. It's the same down to this very day. Rabbis generally don't state their own opinion. What they do is quote previous rabbis. So rabbis are always prone to say things like, there is a teaching that says, and then they will communicate the teaching of another rabbi greater than them. Uh, and, and sometimes they'll say, Rabbi so-and-so says, and they'll invoke the authority of a previous rabbi, and that's how they'll do their teaching. Very few rabbis will speak of their own authority, and now they're marveling because Rabbi Jesus ain't quoting nobody. He's just speaking as if he has every right and authority to say what he wants to say about the law of Moses, the Torah, the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, and they're bothered by all of this. And so, so they're marveling. Who does, he, who does he think he is? He has a lot of audacity and so Jesus perceives all this because, remember, he's more than meets the eye. Don't, don't judge him just by appearances. Je Jesus knew what was going on. So verse 16, he, he answered them and said, he said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. That's what he said. Now, they, the Judean Jewish religious leaders, they only saw two options. You either teach with authority they delegated to you, or you taught uh, out of your own authority, and who do you think you are? But the Lord Jesus is giving them a third option. He's saying, I don't need your authority. <laughs> I don't need your stamp of approval, number one. Two, I am not speaking out of my uh, self. Uh, my teaching and authority is from God Almighty who commissioned me to come here. Well, folks, he is claiming not only a relationship with divinity, he's claiming to be divine here, and they're about ready to go crazy. And, and uh, before they do, he does not uh, mince his words. Look what he says, verse 17. If any man is willing to do his will, he shall know of the teaching, whether it is of God or whether I speak from myself. He essentially says, in your face is what, he, I mean, he's not trying to win friends and influence people. He's not being very diplomatic. He says, look at here, all you Jewish religious leaders, if your hearts were right, you would know of the true nature of my teaching. He said, if you had a will to do the will of God, you would then know of the nature, quality, and character of, of my teaching. I remember when I became a Christian a long time ago, and it was in, a, in the military. I, I've shared this with you, and uh, I purchased a Bible in those days, and um, thank God it was, was a legitimate Bible. I mean, some of them, they're, they're just not good, but this was a good Bible by God's grace, and 
I think I was bragging to you a couple times, and I told you I read it through from all the way through in three weeks. Started out in Genesis chapter 1, figured, finished it over there in Revelation. How many chapters in Revelation? 22, 21? I read it through in, in three weeks. Uh, and I knew when I finished, it was God's word. I knew it. I was so perplexed. How did I know that? I mean, if someone said to me, prove it, I couldn't. You could say that to me now. I probably couldn't prove that the Bible is God's word to your doubtful satisfaction. I probably couldn't. But at the time, I didn't really care what other people thought. Somehow, when I finished reading the Bible, which I had never read before, I was persuaded it wasn't the mere words of man. It was God's word to us. How did I know that? I didn't study Hebrew, Greek, and all this other. I, mean, I didn't know anything like that. I was just, just a slob from Brooklyn, New York, in the military barracks, reading the Bible for the first time I ever held in my hand. And I was persuaded, and I never doubted. That was 1973. That was a long time ago. I've never doubted that the Bible does not contain truth. It are truth. Every bit of it. I've just never, ever doubted it. And I thought back, how did I know it was God's word then? Now, I'm not bragging to you. I'm just telling you something. I knew it because I had a will to do it. And I think God persuaded me on that basis. It was his word. I didn't read it to put him to the test. I didn't read it to examine it through my own ration and mentality. I read it to submit to it. And as a result, I saw its quality it was the inspired and inerrant word of God, and I've never doubted it since. I had an interest in obeying the gospel. A lot of times when you hear the gospel is the good news of the Lord Jesus dying in our place, you wonder, where we get this? What do you mean, obey the gospel? Don't you have to accept the gospel? Yeah, that is a form of obedience. That's right. To accept the gospel is to obey the gospel. To, to obey the gospel is to do what the gospel says. The gospel says, accept me, <laughs> accept this. And when you do that, you obey it. Now, I had in my heart, I didn't know what the gospel was. I can use the vocabulary I just used with you. I had no frame of reference. But I knew I was fully acquainted with plenty of bad news, most of which I brought on myself by living on this planet as if the creator doesn't exist. I just did my own thing and made a horrible mess of my life. It was just hanging by a thread to tell you the truth. It, it was characterized by suicide attempt and alcoholism and drugs and all kinds of shenanigans. And that's what the fruit of my labors were. And when I cracked open the Bible, it wasn't because I had nothing else to read or do. I was desperately searching for something to set me free. To be frank with you, I didn't know the something was not a something at all. It was a somebody. I, 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 I got to be frank with you. I didn't know anything like that. But, but God knew I had a heart to do what he told me I needed to do. And so he opened the Bible and in the process persuaded me of its character. I knew it was God's word because I had an intent to do what it said. You know what it said? Come to me, all 
who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But I didn't know about that, Brother Stan. I didn't know that was in the Bible. I didn't know anything like that. All I knew was I'm a mess and I'm empty and I'm alive, but I'm dead. I'm the walking dead. I knew there was a God, but I didn't know how you access him or anything like that. I didn't know if you could, but he knew all that stuff. And when I entered onto this territory of biblical truth for the first time ever, my desperation created in me a willingness to do what it said for me to do. Folks, if it told me you got to stand on your head three hours a day and dye your hair purple or something, I, I think I would have done it. I mean, you know, of course, it doesn't ask you to do anything like that. But, uh, but God knew I would do what it asked me to do. And I knew from that point on it was God's word. My mother, I don't know, several months later, had the same experience. I gave her a Bible. She began to read it. And uh, she was persuaded soon thereafter that the author was God himself and that the, the uh, theme was God's son who came to offer himself for our sins. Now, whoever, who persuaded my mother? This is a, a, a lady not ever formally educated. In those days, that just didn't happen. She was a factory worker all her life. So once again, it wasn't a, you know, study and academic intellectual study. It was a willing heart that revealed to her the character of the scriptures. And that's what Jesus said to these Wow, what an offense. Jewish religious leaders, he, said, he says to them and all of us, if anyone is willing to do his will, he'll know of the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak for myself. That's why smart people, just because they're smart, can't tap into the Bible. The key to access it is a willingness to do it. Now, God knows this before the fact. So he keeps it a closed book from people, though they may have high IQs, uh, you know, uh, but hardened hearts. You know, why would God cast his pearls before swine? That's his words, not mine. So anyway, uh, that's what he says to these Jewish people, you know, these experts in the law. And then he goes on, he says, verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. That's true, isn't it? But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. They had a test of the uh, authenticity and sincerity of a speaker, of a rabbi, of a teacher. They had a test, and, but it was a false test. The test was, did you go through our school? <laughs> that was their test. The Lord Jesus gives them two other ways to figure out that he's the real deal. Number one, his authority is, doesn't come from a man, and it is not self-derived. It comes from God, and his motive in his teaching is the glory of God. And those two things, authority from God, glory of God, and he said, that should tell you I pass the test of veracity, of truthfulness, of Reliability. Now, now he goes on. <clears throat> Verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law? Now with my people, the law of Moses, we call it the Torah, is big stuff. The Torah. In our synagogues, we take it 
It's in scrolls. There's a cover on it, and we carefully uncover it, and we carry it around. We'd go up and down the aisles like this, and everyone would be standing when the Torah scrolls are being marched around the synagogue. And people would stand up, and they, and they would... They might have a prayer book and they'll put it to the scroll and they'll kiss it. Or sometimes they're wearing fringes on the corners of their garment and they'll touch it with the fringes, something like that. They'll show respect for the Torah. The Torah, uh, the law given by God on Mount Sinai to Moses, this is like big stuff. So Rabbi Jesus says to them, now did not Moses give you the law? Whoa, he's on sensitive and familiar territory with them now. But then he says, yet none of you carries out the law. (gasps) You claim to respect the law, but you break it. And they're just about ready to jump in. What do you mean? What do you mean break it? And before they have a chance to get it out, he fills in the blank. Why do you seek to kill me? You see, the law of Moses says, does it not? Thou shalt not kill. But that's exactly the intent of their heart. He, he, he knows this. See, the law of Moses is not consistent with their plan to murder him. So he smokes it out. He puts it right back on them. Why do you seek to kill me? Now the multitude answered in verse 20. Now look, look, look. See, the multitude, they're also Jews. The multitude is different than the Judean religious leadership. Who are these multitudes? Mostly they're Jewish pilgrims who came from other places. Remember, they came to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. So the multitudes answered, you have a demon. Don't you think Jesus, the God-man, is amazingly patient with you and I? People accused him of being demon-possessed. And he didn't wipe them out. You have a demon, the multitudes said to him. Who seeks to kill you? Why'd they say that? You see, because they're out-of-towners. They come from all over the place. They're not native Jerusalemites, most of them. They come from all places for this pilgrim feast. They don't know of the plot of the Jewish religious leaders behind the scenes. They don't know a thing about it. So for this Jesus to say, you're out to kill me, they say, are you demon? You know the equivalent of what they said is, are you paranoid? Are you crazy? Who seeks to kill you? And Jesus, verse 21, answered and said to them, I did one deed, and you all marvel. Now that takes some splaining. The last time he was in Jerusalem, the one deed he did, which got him all kinds of negative attention, took place at a, at a place called the Pools of Bethesda. There was a guy there who was sick for 38 years. The nature of his sickness was that he couldn't walk. Rabbi Jesus, the healer, shows up and essentially tells him to do what he can't do. He says, rise up. (laughs) And not by the man's power, but by the healer's power, the Lord Jesus, he stood up. But Jesus didn't only tell him to stand up. He said, take up your pallet and walk away. 
That's really something, isn't it? Except it was on the Sabbath. And the same Jewish religious leaders are observing that Rabbi Jesus violated the Sabbath law. He healed the guy on the Sabbath and he told the guy to carry. You're not supposed to carry things on the Sabbath. Carry your bed away. Now the Lord Jesus is saying, I did that one deed. That's what he's referring to. And you all marveled. Not in a good sense. They marveled not over his capacity to heal a man who couldn't walk for 38 years. They marveled over the fact that he had the audacity to do it on Shabbat, on the Sabbath. And as a result of that, they definitely had a plan to kill him. And that's what he's saying to the multitudes. He's saying, y'all don't know what's going on. The last time I was here, I did one thing in Jerusalem. I healed that guy down the block at the pool of Bethesda. He's walking around now. He's jogging. And as a result, your own religious leaders freaked out. They marveled that I had the gall to do it on the Sabbath. And it so offended them that they think I violated the Sabbath, they want to kill me. He said, I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not paranoid at all. I know the facts. Then he goes on, verse 22. On this account, Moses has given you circumcision. Not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. And on the Sabbath, you circumcise a man. Now, what's all this mean? Before Moses was, circumcision was. In fact, Abraham, as a sign of the covenant, uh, circumcised folk in Genesis chapter 17. That's what it means here. Moses gave you circumcision, not because it was from Moses, but from the fathers. So Father Abraham engaged in the practice of circumcision. It was the sign of the covenant uh, of the people with God. Later on, Moses regulated it in the law of Moses. And uh, one of the regulations in the Mosaic law said circumcision has to take place on the eighth day after a Jewish male baby is born. Well, what if the eighth day falls, the eighth day of this kid's birth, falls on a Saturday, on the Sabbath? The law of Moses said, you circumcise him anyway. If his eighth day falls on the Sabbath, you circumcise him on the Sabbath. That's kind of what's going on over here. And so this being the case, uh, the Lord says, verse 23, if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, that the law of Moses may not be broken. Are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? <clears throat> Later on, rabbis said there are some 250 major parts of the body, something like that. And the rabbis said, um, <laughs> no one of those parts is as important as the totality of the man's life. Um, in, in advance of it, Rabbi Jesus is essentially saying, the, you accuse me of breaking the law and violating the Sabbath, but Moses said on the Sabbath, you can circumcise a man. You're just trying, I mean, and circumcision is a blessing, but it only involves, hope I'm not getting too graphic here, but it only involves one part of a person's body. And you say, that's okay on the Sabbath. I healed a whole man. 
so that he could just walk off and live a normal life. His, his whole life, the entirety of it all is entirely different now. And you say, that's a violation of the Sabbath? You're messing around with one organ on the Sabbath and you think you can get away with that? I healed the whole guy, and you're saying I broke the Sabbath? How could Moses allow you to do circumcision on that day, and you not allow me to heal a man in his entirety on this day? The purpose of the Sabbath is to do good. I didn't break the Sabbath laws. You don't know what you're talking about. No, that's a paraphrase, but that's essentially what he's saying. In fact, he says this, verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Stop judging superficially. Things are not what they appear to be. To you it appeared that I'm a lawbreaker, a Sabbath breaker, but you don't even know your own law. If you judged, if you discerned things righteously in a way that was pleasing to God, you would see that I didn't break the Sabbath any more than the Sabbath is broken when you circumcise on this particular day. Now their judgment of what he did was a misjudgment based on appearances. And their judgment of who he was was also a misjudgment based on appearances. Folks, he was not merely whom he appeared to be. Even today, many misjudge this Jesus of Nazareth and thus reject him because of who in their eyes he appears to be. But he's much more than he appears to be. But to many people today, he just doesn't appear to be the one who could save us. He just doesn't look savior-like or messiah-like. He just doesn't seem to be outstanding enough to fill the bill. His outward appearance, they would say in that day, was not what we expected. Folks, they barely recognized him when he was teaching in the temple. He just fit in. He was so ordinary. He didn't look majestic or magnificent at all. He was indistinguishable from every other Jewish man. He looked ordinary. They were looking for an extraordinary personage who would be their savior, and they get Yeshua of Nazareth, the carpenter's son. He looks like every other Jew. <laughs> but don't stop there, because Jesus is far more than he appears to be. But since he didn't appear to them, to many today, to be royal, to be majestic, to be powerful and mighty, he was rejected. In fact, the rejection of Jesus, based on appearances, did you know it was predicted and foretold by Isaiah, himself a Jewish person, 700 years before all this stuff even happened? I read to you just two verses in a very key chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, just the first two verses. Listen, verse one, who, it opens with a question, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who's asking those questions? Well, it's Jews who came to the light 
It's Jewish believers, Jews who came to see that Jesus was their Messiah. And this is written in anticipation of them discovering him. This is written 700 years before the fact, before Jesus was even enfleshed and came to earth. Jewish believers will ask, once they find Jesus, they will ask, who else has believed our report? And they will reflect and ponder on the fact that not many of their own countrymen they will realize they are the exception to the rule and that most of their Jewish countrymen have not believed their report and have not accepted Jesus, Yeshua, as their Messiah. Why not? Well, the next verse gives us an explanation. It is this. Jesus was not the kind of Savior they were looking for. Verse 2, for he grew up. That got them. Boom. He can't be our Messiah. Our Messiah is divine. He can't be God. God doesn't grow up. This is a reference to a man. He's a mere man. Jesus is a mere man. We don't accept him. He can't be king of the Jews. He's a mere man. He grew up. Men grow up. God doesn't grow up. Therefore, he's not God. Isaiah furthermore says, he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He's just a tender shoot growing out of parched ground. Folks, the people were expecting a great tree. He's just a tender shoot who popped out of parched ground. He was born in arid Israel. Nothing special about it whatsoever. Intensely ordinary. This is not the kind of deliverer they were looking for. He had such ordinary beginnings. No fanfare at all. Just a root popping up in an arid area known as Israel. Not very impressive at all. Based on appearances, he didn't look like their Messiah. Not only that, as he grew up, he looked very ordinary. He didn't look like the image of the king they were looking for at all. Isaiah says he has no stately form or majesty. Folks, if Jesus in the flesh walked into this room and we didn't know any better, nobody would look around. He just looks like anybody. Nothing special. You mean no trumpet blasts? You know, no angels preceding him, his coming? He would not stand head and shoulders above that. He didn't look like Charlton Heston at all, any of these people. You, Brenner, I don't know who portrays the Lord, you know. He just looked, he just looked ordinary. He... He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Nothing. He didn't look regal at all. It's not that he was ugly. No, 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 no. It's just that he was ordinary. That's all. Nothing special. He didn't stand head and shoulders above the crowd whatsoever. And as a result, people then, people now, judging by appearances, mm -hmm. Don't think Jesus 
is savior-like material. I mean, what kind of savior is this? He was born in a manger. You know what that is? You feed pigs out of it. Well, not pigs. Sorry about that. <laughs> That's probably the wrong choice of animal. But animals eat out of mangers in Israel. You can see him today. It's a little bit of a trough. You know that's where he was born, in a manger. It's not just a nice song. It's a historical fact. He was born in a smelly old manger in Bethlehem, and he grew up in insignificant Nazareth. I know we know of Nazareth today. You think it's a special place. It had about 120 people in the Lord's day. You know what it was known for? Zip. Nothing. Born in a, kind of like a stable in Bethlehem. <coughs> Grew up in this dinky old country town. Nobody goes there called Nazareth. I mean, the rabbis are saying, come on, any self-respecting savior would at least have been born in Jerusalem, not Nazareth. So then you see the Jewish witnesses speaking by anticipation in Isaiah 53, realize why many haven't believed their report. He, this Jesus, did not appear to be very Messiah-like. He didn't look like a deliverer at all. There was a great writer of old named George MacDonald. Listen to what he said. They were all looking for a king to slay their foes and lift them high. Thou camest a little baby thing that made a woman cry. <clears throat> he did not appear to be the Messiah. And he's missed down to this very day because of appearances. Why did he come then in such a humble, ordinary, human manner? It's because to create, all God had to do was speak. Remember when he said, let there be light? Boom. To create, all God had to do is speak. But to redeem, he had to bleed. Now, how could God do that? God cannot die. Therefore, God became man to bleed and to die. He appeared as a man because he came as an ordinary man to do an extraordinary thing on behalf of all men and women. Bleed for them. People missed the way he appeared the first time and therefore they're not ready for the second time when he comes again. Folks, this tender shoot is God's son. He came to bleed for you and for me. We have transgressed. Everybody here, everybody, we have sinned. All have sinned. We've gone astray. We have turned away from our maker, the giver of life. And so I ask this question based on all that. How do you and I propose to pay the debt we owe the God who owns us. You tell me, how are we going to pay the debt? We can't. You can't. Try as you may, you can. For all have sinned and fall short. You can't pay the debt. Neither can I. 
We can't bear the burden of our indebtedness to a holy God. So what happened? The Father sent us outside help. He didn't come as a commanding general, and he didn't come as a conquering hero, and he didn't come as a smooth-talking politician. He came as a man, a plain old ordinary Jewish man, to suffer and die for all men and women of every tribe and kindred and tongue, so as to satisfy the debt we could not pay. To do so, he had to bleed and die. And shortly before he accomplished the task, he said, paid in full. And his dying canceled the debt, which we otherwise could never, ever pay the Father. Jesus had to come this way. And so Almighty God, by amazing grace, reduced himself to the form, I don't know how, but he did it, of an ordinary man to die for sinful men and women like us. Now, this is how he appeared the first time, for sure. But don't be fooled by appearances. That's the point. Don't be fooled by appearances. As the Lord said in verse 24, do not judge according to appearance. Judge with righteous judgment. Folks, he came first as the sacrificial lamb, for sure. But he will come next as the roaring lion of Judah. He came first to judge sin in his own body, but he will come next to judge sinners. He came the first time for a while. He will come the next time forever. Do not misjudge his appearance at his first coming because if you do so, you will leave yourself entirely unprepared for his second coming. If you have accurately recognized him for who he is, if you have seen past mere appearances, and if you have seen this thoroughly human, yet without sin, Jesus, to be also thoroughly divine, the God-man, the only one who can mediate between us and his Father, if you have rightly reckoned on his first coming, you are fully prepared for his second coming. But can you see how important it is to do what he said? Do not judge me by superficial appearances. I am far more than I appear to be. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I have no beginning nor any end. <laughs> no man has seen the Father but me. You cannot access the Father but by me. I appear to be a man, <laughs> but I created all men. I reduced myself. I was humiliated <clears throat> to win you. But don't leave me on the cross. <laughs> I'm not there. After my humiliation is my exaltation. And there will be a day 
when everyone, even those who have missed the significance and the uh, character of my first coming, those who have misjudged my appearance the first time, they and everyone else one day will recognize that I am Lord above all lords and King above all kings. I beg you, render tonight the right decision about who this Jesus of Nazareth is. Your eternity depends upon it. For the verdict you render about Jesus will affect the verdict he renders about you and me. Come to me, says he, all who are weary and heavy laden. Why should I if you're just a man as you appear to be? Oh, no, but he's the God man. So he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I give you rest. I will lay to rest the debt you owe me because you have transgressed. You have violated and offended my holiness. and You owe me a debt. There's accountability. And he says, I can lay to rest your indebtedness if you accept the totality of the payment I rendered for your sins on the cross. That's very important. I beseech you. I beseech you. Make sure before you leave tonight, you're certain about this question. Who is Jesus? What did he accomplish the first time he came what does he intend to do the second time? You see, you and I are living in the envelope between the two. His first and second coming, his first coming will determine our response to him at his second coming. If you get his first coming right, you are looking forward with great expectation to his second coming. If you don't get his first coming right, you're in a heap of trouble with regard to his second comes. Yeah, how important it is. I beseech you before you leave tonight, spend a few moments with us in the Connection Center. It's a room right behind us. You can enter from either direction. People will be there to sit with you, field your questions. Every question is welcome. Talk to you about who this Jesus is. What did he come to accomplish the first time? What does he intend to do the second time? You've got to get it right. I pray you would. In fact, I pray that now. Lord Jesus, that's our prayer, that there be not one person who's rendered a judgment about you merely based on appearances, for you are far more than who you appear to be. And I pray you would search hearts tonight, and if there be one willing to do your will, that is, accept the good news of forgiveness through your suffering on their behalf. If there be that one person, I pray that one would know of the teaching that it comes from you. So I pray, oh God, everyone who leaves here tonight would be a saved person, looking forward with great expectation to your second coming, having by faith benefited from your first coming. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.